good morning. It is a pleasure to be back at Forest Hills Baptist Church and the relationship we've had over the years. And I want to commend you for being a great church who cares for your missionaries. And uh, I know Jennifer's had a great furlough and touching base with her a couple times. And a couple young guys even showed up a very early morning airport departure for, for Drew. And um, seeing Forest Hills represented at Dan Cook's wedding recently. Just your care and concern, um, your partnership with a number of, of my former teammates over the years. And that's, um, you might think you have a good missions program, but as a, someone from afar, I want to affirm that to you. And the way you've, and even um, with your worship team's participation in the conferences in Central and Eastern Europe and the, those that you don't support, but the long-term friendships and um, encouragement and um, just your heart for the nations. And so just, uh, it's always a joy to be here and to be here on a special morning uh, with what's happening next door that those of you are part of. And um, was able, I'd been in a few, just touched base with Craig every now and then, and we had had lunch a couple weeks ago. So I'd asked him how last Sunday went. And I think Luke must have slipped a little bit of video footage of your eruption of applause and appreciation when Craig was announced as the candidate. And what an exciting time for this church family. Well, this morning I want to look at a text that probably all of us have encountered um, it's probably not one that we necessarily forget about what the words say. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. It's one that probably, as it comes to mind, it's like, oh, yeah, that's one that I probably don't apply as much as I should. Uh, it's not a difficult text in terms of what's its meaning. Uh, there's not a lot of word study required or battling commentators on this. This is really what it's about. Um, and it's about our planning and our approach um, and so James 13, uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, if God wills, as we put our plans into the proper perspective, that we, not, we don't presume upon God and that we humbly submit our plans to him. So I think all of us have, are familiar with this, and as we hear it, uh, like I said, it's probably not a new text, but there are times when it's like, oh yeah. Am I really living that out? And probably for most of us, the past three to four years have particularly brought this text front and center. Because in March 2020, the pandemic kind of stopped or changed a lot of our plans. Did they not? Did it not? Um, whether it be long-term plans for a graduation ceremony or a, a wedding ceremony or even some funerals, that those plans had to look very different. How we did church looked very different. Um, how we thought about planning ahead looked very different as to what was permissible, what was wise, what would other people feel comfortable about. And that, that those changes, experiencing in a foreign country and seeing border after border close and freedom of movement being restricted including for us what was kind of our medical lifeline was across the border in Vienna. We were living in Slovakia. It changed a lot of things as the world got smaller and to think through. And so that's really, for me, has been a little bit of a carryover that more consciously now, whether I say it or even add it to the end of an email, if God wills. And it's not meant to be trite or kind of flippant, like, ha-ha, you know, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. If God... But the reality of, of to consider that God is sovereign and God is in control. God is also good. God is wise. 
and God's providence that oftentimes we kind of, we think of sovereignty and the big plans of God, but oftentimes we forget about his providence of every last detail uh, of our lives and, and the lives that we're interacting with um, are to be acknowledged and to be remembered. So this morning we want to look at this, this small set of verses to give you a little bit of context where this falls in the book of James. Um, and, and we're actually working through that series right now at West Canon. But James is considered the, the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And you see a lot of similarities to the Proverbs. And sometimes even as people look through, how do you kind of outline James or how do you show the sequence? Um, there is a sequence, but it's maybe not quite as detailed as kind of Paul with his kind of legal mind and a clear argument. And this is building to this and this is building to that. But James is providing a number of aspects of wisdom literature for us in the New Testament context. And in chapter 3, verse 13, he begins this section about wisdom. And he contrasts the wisdom from above with wisdom from below. And as even as we think about wisdom from above, or true wisdom, it brings us back to Proverbs, the very beginning. Proverbs 1-7, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so as we see wisdom rooted in, the, in Proverbs, in the wisdom literature, it starts with an acknowledgement, the fear of the Lord. And that's Lord with the small caps, Yahweh, the sovereign God, the true God of the Bible, the living God, the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God to his people, the sovereign one, the fear of the Lord, the proper reverence and acknowledgement for who he is, is the beginning of knowledge. And that will, will guide us even as we think through planning and kind of our applications in our lives. Well, James continues in this section developing this ideas about true wisdom um, in verse 6 of chapter 4 that God opposes the proud, those who lift themselves up, but he gives grace to the humble those who come before him in, a, in an attitude, in a spirit of humility, truly seeking him, acknowledging him. As a result, verse 7, then submit yourselves, therefore, to God, to yield to him with our lives, with our plans, with our thoughts. And then again in verse 10, humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. Now, running kind of parallel to this, true wisdom and what true wisdom looks like, how it plays out, how we evidence it in our lives, are also the, the evidences of what wisdom from below is. Or in, in the Proverbs lingo, folly. So there's wisdom and there's folly. There's wisdom from above in James and there's wisdom from below. Or human wisdom, fleshly wisdom, selfish wisdom. And folly manifests itself in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. Our desires, unchecked desires, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 10 point out this, this contrast between humility versus pride. And then it manifests itself in verses 11 and 12 in superiority, elevating ourselves over others from which we then slander or judge people, not seeing them as peers. Um, boasting, which we'll look at this morning, verses 13 through 17. And then that's, this mini-section concludes at the beginning of chapter 5 that wisdom from below also manifests itself in greed. So we looked this morning, if 
God wills, or Lord willing, but putting aside the pride of our plans, putting aside our presumptuousness as we position ourselves in the place of God with regard to our future, whether it be this afternoon's agenda, our career path, or whatever else we have down the road. So to, to the main idea, summarize where, what we're looking at as these verses come together, is that we display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God and submit our plans to His will with open hands. In other words, we, we hold them loosely. So we display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God and submit our plans to His will with open hands. Now, as we focus on that and develop that, there is a flip side that we're not going to, to delve into, but we need to be aware of as we're seeking to avoid that we demonstrate wisdom from below when we make plans in our pride without consideration for God. Presumptuousness. Thus revealing our sinful James would even say evil delusions of autonomy, control, and self-sufficiency. With that main idea in mind, you might already be thinking to something that you've just, maybe even this weekend or last weekend, inscribed in a graduation card. And that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So as we get to this section of scripture in James chapter 4, our outline this morning is pretty straightforward. Each main point is one of the verses. And it kind of follows pretty, kind of, it's pretty logical, although there's a little bit of stop and come back and repeat. But we start with a common condition. We look at a core critique of that. James then offers some corrective counsel, some clarifying condemnation, and he finishes with a continuing call to all of us. So we begin with a common condition. And he, we've encountered this really from James kind of overhearing a conversation. But it's one that we would also overhear quite regularly. It's common, after all. And that is planning without the thought of God. Someone even termed this practical atheism. You know, we would say that we believe in God, but do our lives reflect that? Does our planning reflect that? And in the Tyndale New Testament commentary series, it writes that this passage is a warning for Christians of the worldliness which causes its victims to neglect God and to arrange their lives as though He did not exist and as if they alone are masters of their destiny. So what is this common condition that we see? What's this conversation that James overhears? Look in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now first we see that this actually does connect back to the last passage. Uh, you may have, my Bible has a heading over verse 13, boasting about tomorrow. Uh, and that's what we're going to be looking about. But within this theme of humility, the connection to the previous two verses 
that just as verses 11 and 12 show a lack of humility in our understanding of ourselves in relationship to others by slandering and judging and placing ourselves in a position of superiority, these verses, these next few verses, show our lack of humility in relationship to our lives and our ambitions. We are boastful in the, pl- the, the way we make our plans and the plans that we make. And so James begins, come now. So he invites them. It's a call to attention. Here's an invita- invitation how to avoid folly. So come now, those of you who say. So what are they saying? This seems like a pretty benign statement, doesn't it? Today or tomorrow, we're going to go such and such a town, insert your destination of, of choice, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet in these commonly shared plans, in one simple sentence, we can identify at least eight presumptions that many would treat as certainties. Of course they're going to happen. Those are my plans. That's what I've established. This is, what I've been, this is on the drawing board. This is the culmination. Well, now, of course, they're going to happen. But notice, first of all, is the time of departure. Today or tomorrow. It, it, it's going to happen. Actually departing. Arrival at that specific destination. The amount of time to spend there. The ability to conduct business. The favorable conditions that would lead to a profit and the presumption of returning home. And underlying all of these, as we'll see even in the next couple of verses, is the presumption even of continued life. It's life on autopilot and a life on cruise control the auto driving car you punch in the gps coordinates autopilot we get there right no accounting for the complexities of life let alone the potential intervention of god to redirect to change to frustrate to delay to reroute our plans even plans made consistent with his will This isn't necessary to say that these were bad plans. James is mostly addressing the way in which these plans were developed without thought or consideration for God and the assumption that they had the ability to make them come about. Alec Macher writes this, It's all so ordinary, indeed so natural, and that's exactly the point. When James exposes the blemish of presumptuousness, He exposes something which is the unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves as if life were our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make make a success of things, as if getting on, making money, and doing well were life's sole objective. These are plans made without thought of God. And we hear these plans made all around us. We're honest, we hear these plans being made in our own heads. And into this conversation, James brings a reality check. Remember, he has invited those planners, those thoughtful planners, those casual planners. Come, listen, those of you who say this, 
Those of you who are going about your lives as if you're the ones in control. I've got a critique of that. A reality check, a reminder, some instruction for you. Verse 14. Those of you who have planned out your year, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The first critique that James has of this common condition of our planning without thought of God is to remind them, or to point out, for those who maybe haven't figured it out, their, their own, our own ignorance. Basic ignorance. Because we don't even know what tomorrow will bring, let alone the next year. John Calvin writes, They claimed for themselves a whole year, though they had not a single moment in their own power. And so for us to think that those plans are within our power, to think and to act otherwise, that we aren't ignorant of that, is to boast. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Not only is it boasting, but to think and act otherwise, as if we know about tomorrow, is foolish. And consider the parable in Luke 12 of the rich man who built bigger barns. And what am I going to do with these barns? I don't have enough space. Well, I'm going to tear them down and I'm going to build bigger barns. All of his planning, all of his plans about himself and his profit and the practical applications of what was next. In Luke 12, 20, But God said to him, You fool! This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's foolishness not to plan with God in mind. It's foolish to plan as if we know what tomorrow will bring. Not only is there uncertainty, is there ignorance, our knowledge is finite, but there's also, and there's unknown elements about the future and complexities, but the other sobering reality that, J, that James brings is our own frailty, the brevity of our lives. We are but a mist appearing for a little time and then vanishing. And if you have the, the printed outline, you know, they, I went ahead and included over t- 10 different references pointing to the brevity of life. It's but a mist. It's but a vapor. We're like the blades of grass. Our life, our health is of unknown duration. And this comes to, this is continued, he doesn't leave it there. Because James is going to come back to this a little bit as he corrects us in our thinking. Donald Burdick writes, They have been planning as if they know exactly what the future holds, or even as if they have control of the future. But not only is their knowledge limited, but their very lives are uncertain. So that changes the dynamic. It changes how we begin this process of planning. Now, James doesn't leave them there. It's like, okay, this is how you're talking. This is what you're not thinking about. But he comes back to them, and he continues to provide correction. This is how you should be planning. So notice, he's not condemning planning. It's how they were planning and who they were leaving out. And so he provides corrective counsel in verse 15. Instead, so instead of the way you've been planning, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's pointing out that our planning should be done in light of God's sustaining grace that is necessary for our existence. In light of God's sovereign will, his providence, his sovereignty. And to keep our hands open, to hold on to our plans loosely, that God may do what he will. Because he's going to do that. And whether he has to rip them out of our hands, or he simply takes them and we yield them to him, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and he will exalt you. So we see, first of all, the dependence on God for life itself. We easily read over this as one simple statement. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But it's really the construction, if the Lord wills, we will live. Starting point. Our continued existence is also dependent upon him. We're reminded as Jesus instructed the disciples in praying, give us today our daily bread. That that's an ongoing attitude of dependency upon him. That we are needing of his grace and sustaining grace in our lives. It pictures back to the manna. You think of bread. God gave manna for each day. He gave two days for Sabbath observance. But other than that, beyond the second day, it spoiled So the Israelites were in that habit, that pattern of visually acknowledging their daily dependence on their God. And in our prayer lives, give us today, Father, our daily bread that I stand in need of. Our need for his constant sustenance, maintenance, and providence. We see that in Christ in Colossians 1, that all things hold together through him. And then secondarily, our dependence on God for fulfillment of our plans. So it's if the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Proverbs 16.9 tells us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. MacArthur writes that the true Christian submits his his or her plans to the lordship of Christ. It's that step beyond, I I, I give God my life, kind of in the big picture. This is that application of the minute by minute, the hour by hour, the day by day, my clock, my calendar, my schedule, my planning, are His. This wasn't a completely brand new formula um, for those that James would have been hearing, because even the ancient Greeks, in appealing to their pantheon of gods, had a saying at the beginning of every undertaking, with the leave and blessing of God. So even in their lack of understanding of who the true God is, the one who really is sovereign over all, they also had this understanding, if with the leave, meaning the permission, you know, by your leave, you know, when you think of a a master or superior, with the leave of God and with the blessing of God. And so that might have been not clearly understood or even applied. It might have become a very common phrase beyond that. But there's some truth rooted in that, that even they recognized uh, of the the necessity as humans to depend upon God and to seek his pleasure and for his ongoing power to accomplish what we plan. We also see this attitude of Jesus in the constant attitude of the heart to do his will. And as we think even of these aspects of uh, our daily bread and manna, again, to food, Jesus said to them in John 4, 34, 
my food, so the ongoing sustenance of my life, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so sometimes when our plans might be originally designed consistent with his will and his work, but if God begins to change them and we hold on to them, then quickly we're out of his will. And that shouldn't be what's driving us any longer. And so James is providing this corrective counsel in how we plan. Not that we plan. Uh, we see other examples of planning throughout Scripture. Uh, even the, the reason that God gave Joseph the dream about the, 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 the fat cows and the skinny cows was that during the seven years of planning, Joseph was preparing. He was planning ahead for the seven years of famine. And they were building storehouses of grain that, that met the needs of the people of Egypt. And in God's providence, even his family that came. In Luke 14, we see the instruction that the, those who are building a tower must count the cost. What are the, what are the price? What are the materials needed that you plan ahead? In that same passage, that a king who goes to war must plan ahead and figure out how many the enemy has and how many soldiers. Is it sufficient? Or do I go to battle or not? That planning is not the problem here. And throughout Paul's writings, we see Paul talk about future plans. If God wills, I will come to see you. Or I hope to see you in the spring. I would like to go to Spain. Paul had plans, but they always meant and intended in subjection to what God had and whether they would come about or not. And so we see this little phrase, if the Lord wills, Lord willing. Um, in Latin during a period, there was actually a Deus vol volente, God willing. And it would be kind of became a little bit more of a formula and oftentimes uh, became so overused that it lost its meaning. And I think sometimes for that same reason, we may shy away from it. And yet sometimes I think to reintroduce it, to explicitly have that in mind, not only for ourselves, but those that are hearing us talk know that we have that in mind. Tasker writes this, There's a real danger that the expression God willing may be used too glibly and so become a formality devoid of religious content. For the most part, however, Christians today do not give sufficient expression to this sense of man's utter dependence upon the will of the transcendent God. And they might profitably ask themselves whether their refusal to say God willing is really due to a horror of hypocrisy or to a failure to acknowledge the supremacy of God. So James provides this correction of how we ought to plan. But then in verse 16, he comes back to the common condition, the planning without God in mind. And we've, he's provided this critique why it's not sufficient. You know, you're ignorant. Your life is, is uncertain. And we can kind of leave it there, you know, wise or unwise. But he goes farther in actually condemning that way of planning. Notice verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Planning without God is not just foolish and wrong. It's sinful. And James even uses the term evil. Planning without God is a boastful arrogance. Literally, the words here, you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. It's a proud confidence in one's own knowledge or cleverness. 
but with the implication that those qualities aren't really possessed. It's fake. We think we have it, but it's not there. It's a human self-confidence and self-congratulation which falsely project autonomy, control, and self-sufficiency. Seeing life itself as a continuing right rather than as a daily mercy. And so the things that were kind of suggested in the previous three verses, James now really drives down on to make it very clear the seriousness of what's happening when we practically plan our lives without considering God. When we insist on our plans without yielding them to God. Paul's writing in in terms of, of the correction to boasting. He writes many times that our boasting is in Christ. In Jeremiah 9, it's stated this way, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. It goes back to Proverbs 1-7. For the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge and fear of the Lord. We're tempted to rely on our wisdom, or our might, our abilities, or our wealth if we have it. And yet all of those fall short. And if we plan based on that, as opposed to planning with God in mind, we are boasting This boastful arrogance, and this is where we may be caught a little surprised how strongly James condemns this, is evil. Mitten writes that the word arrogance is also used in 1 John 2.16 where it's translated as the pride of life. In that context, in association with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, it represents the spirit of the world, which is at enmity with God and with all that God stands for. And all such boasting, with its accompanying arrogance, writes James, is evil. Because in effect, we are placing ourselves on the throne. The throne of the sovereign God when we don't consider him in our planning. And don't trust him with the actual unfolding of events. It's the very sin of Lucifer, of wanting to be like God. To make the decisions, to be self-determinative to choose what is right and what is good for ourselves. Macher again writes this, and this kind of helps us to see that it's easy to kind of gloss over. We think, oh, that's, that's important, but maybe not that serious. In other words, when even in little, secret, almost unrecognizable ways, we forget how frail we are and stop short of conscious dependence on our God, it is an element of the proud, boastful, vaunting human spirit, flaunting its supposed independence and self-sufficiency. And as such, it is evil, verse 16. And James offers no qualification of the word. He merely says evil, the word which other scriptures also use of the devil, the evil one. So we see the seriousness of this common planning without concern for God. And then James finishes with this continuing call, this actual accountability for this, that he's now brought it to our attention 
what this is. And so whoever knows the right thing to do, verse 17, and fails to do it for him, it is sin. The sins of omission, of known obligation, or of missed opportunities are also sin. The so that begins verse 17, therefore, maybe in some of your translations, connects it to the preceding verses and the relationship of our plans to God's will. This is the, really the only part where some commentators have some discussion about how does this fit? Does it fit the context? Does it look back? Does it look forward? Some that wouldn't hold to the integrity of Scripture say it really actually belongs at the end of chapter 2 or somewhere else because it doesn't fit. But as you look at, particularly with that connecting word, and as, and as, as we look at the, what James is trying to show to kind of dispel this common approach, and to put it on our radar is so serious with this condemnation, to show that this is actually reflection of the proactive ethic that Jesus has set forth. That sin is not only doing what is forbidden by God, but also failing to do what is good. We have other examples of this scattered through the New Testament. The parable of the talents. The servant who was given one talent, instead of trying to do something with it, simply hid it away. He, he didn't do good. When Jesus asks for those, you know, where were you when I, was, when I was hungry and no one fed me? When I was thirsty and no one gave me drink? When I was naked and no one was not clothed? When I was in prison and no one visited? And he said, Jesus, when did we see you like this? And he says, when, when you did to the least among me, you've done it unto me. That proactive obligation for care. The parable of the Good Samaritan, the two who passed by, the religious leaders, and yet under no legal obligation, the Samaritan tends to the needs that he sees in front of him. And also the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And so we see that this becomes a proactive response of how we are to consider our setting of our plans and holding of our plans. One commentator writes it this way, we might consider it a small thing, a passing feature of life, if we forget how dependent we are and act in mere self-will. But James sees it as the hard core of vaunting pride, which is the mark and curse of fallen man. Here, above all places, we cannot afford to fall into the sin of omission. And so we're accountable to this. Whoever knows the right thing to do, he's provided the correction on how we are to plan, but fail to do it for him, it is sin. So we come back to the main theme this morning, that we display wisdom from above when we humbly recognize our continuous dependency on God. And actually, that was uh, looking up in the dictionary. What's the difference between continuous and continually? And continually does happen regularly, but it's more in intervals. Continuous is an ongoing, all the time, our continuous dependency on God, and we submit our plans to His will with open hands. So we've seen the common, we've seen the critique, the correction, the condemnation, and our accountability. What's this look like in practice? We know that a sovereign God overrules human, human plans to fulfill His purposes. And even when we do establish our plans according to His will, we still wait with open hands to see if and how those plans will develop. And when they don't, which oftentimes happens, 
book of James beginning, book of James begins, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Many trials that we experience, very few that we planned on, very few that we even wanted. Even thinking through Janelle's testimony this morning, very powerful. And those trials, do we see joy? Do those trials, do we open up our hands and let go of the plans that we have made? Do we allow God access to them? Or do we hide them in our hearts? Do our plans become a form of idolatry? No, God, this is what I planned. This is what's going to happen. It has to happen. I'm counting on you to make it happen. Or do we say, God, I, I don't understand, but I trust your plans are better than mine. It can be short-term plans like the weather. I remember as a kid really being angry when it rained and I had a big ball game. And my parents had to remind me, you realize who you're angry at? God is in control of the weather. It could be that promotion that you didn't get at work last month that you thought you were in line for. It could be small plans. It could be big plans. It could be long-term plans. A relationship you really thought was going to be the one. Uh, at this, you wanted to be married. You wanted to have kids. You wanted to have a different relationship with your kids. You thought your retirement would look so much different than it does. Whatever those plans had been and what they are now, it can be sudden changes too. A debilitating injury or disease. Not in our plans but part of God's plans. And if they don't happen, we can trust him to do what is best according to his perfect will. Tripp writes that in grace, he leads you where you didn't plan, where you didn't plan to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. So we trust in him and his plans rather than complain. We praise him because we know it's for his glory and our good. If God wills, Lord willing, it's not a magic formula. It's not a talisman or something to be worn to bring good luck or keep away evil. It's not even be kind of something that we use to kind of a protective superstition. If I say if God wills, I kind of lock it in. God's going to do it. God has to do it for me now, right? It's a simple statement of submission. God, if you will, Lord willing, if... This is what I've intended. This is what I think you're leading me to do, if you will. And so it doesn't always have to be spoken, but it always needs to be our attitude. But we shouldn't be reluctant to use the term as a reminder to ourselves, as a reminder to our hearers. And maybe they'll even say, what do you mean by that? You know, I didn't and to give an opportunity to, to share our faith in a good God. Wisdom from above, true wisdom, is submission to him. Submission to God because he is worthy, because he is wise, because he is good in our clock, in our calendar, in our careers, and in our circumstances. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And if you know Christ today as Savior, we have a relationship with that sovereign God as Father, a good and loving Father. We can trust him. And in conclusion, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those are plans that we can count on. We may not know what they're going to look like, 
We actually can't even imagine what the best plans are, but we know they're in his mind, and he will bring them to bear if we trust him.